learned a lot about the importance in allowing rather than correcting. Allowing people to be who they are means leaving the cheese out to see who takes it. I just want to see what you'll do if you do underestimate me. Welcome to Building Doors. In this series, you'll develop the skills to build a roadmap for success, get inspired by those leaders who have come before you, and give you the confidence to stop waiting and start building. Join us as we dive into the remarkable journey of Tamika Smith, a visionary entrepreneur and leader in the construction industry. Tamika is the founder of MyBellacasa, the founding director of TSR Property Solutions and the founding executive chair of Top 100 Women. Her expertise extends across various domains, from chairing and managing boards to overseeing Australian residential manufacturing for affordable housing. Building upon her experience and passion for change in the affordable housing sector, Tamika has gone on to launch My Bella Casa, specialising in constructing one or two bedroom homes at affordable prices and addressing the demand for these sizes of homes on the housing waitlist. Her passion for empowering women in construction has led her to create the online community platform, which is Top 100 Women. And with a global network of over 20,000 individuals, this platform aims to break down barriers and provide invaluable resources, mentorship opportunities, industry insights and online events for women in the field. Tamika's remarkable career in the construction sector has garnered widespread recognition. In 2020, she was voted as one of the top three female entrepreneurs by the Gold Coast Bulletin. The following year, she was honoured with the title of Most Influential Woman in Construction at the International Built Construction and Engineering Awards in the United Kingdom. Beyond just her day job, Tamika is a force of positive action and she recently launched the I Stand for Kelly campaign to rally the construction industry together to build a home for Kelly Wilkinson, who tragically had her life cut short at the hands of her ex-husband, leaving behind her three children under the age of nine without a home. Tamika's story and the impact she is having is one of passion, innovation and a relentless drive to create positive change in the social and affordable housing industry and the lives of others. Welcome to the Building Doors podcast, Mika. I have really enjoyed just our chats even leading up to this and I just have been looking forward to catching up with you on this episode. I think a lot of what you share is going to resonate with so many people and the fact that you're authentic and genuine about the struggles, the hard stuff, the battles that you've got to go through to achieve what you want is really, really impactful. And it has been when you've shared that with me. So tell us a little bit more around your journey and childhood and how that shaped you or led you to where you are and who you've become today. A lot of question. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me, by the way. You're welcome. I think from my childhood, I grew up in the country. So there was always that element of work ethic. No one's coming, sort it out do the job. There's no one else to do it. And I think particularly growing up with a very strict work ethic in my dad Mm -hmm. um, and my pop definitely helped me to build those foundations for something like construction, Mm. being able to build some of the things that I have. But the key element I think developed from my childhood in some pretty traumatic experiences I'd say, to develop that level of resilience to Mm -hmm. get into something like construction. 
But I always saw it as such an opportunity Mm. because whilst there wasn't roads paved Mm. for women and there wasn't a lot of straight lines to get into, that just looked to me like this completely untouched piece of land that we could create something with, which definitely sculpted the decisions to get into the industry. Yep. One of the things that you spoke about that I wanted to talk about as well is how you made your mark early on and how you worked when you were Metricon to sort of come from a farm into a city and demonstrate what you could do. Tell us more around how you create those opportunities there for yourself as well. I was always a hustler and look at at one point when I was 13, I left home and was living in tents and cars and there was this notion very early on that if I was going to make something happened or if something was going to happen in my life, I really had to accept responsibility very early on. It Mm -hmm. was like, there is no one coming. There is no one coming to solve these problems. Mm. You're either going to go one way or the other, Tamika. And it's interesting when I look back, you know, I still find books where I was reading at 13, 14, trying to understand, trying to learn with goals boards all over my wall. And I'd underline all these words that I didn't know the meaning of. Yeah. Back then, you know, we had dictionaries. So you'd spend hours going back to <laughs> look through a dictionary and go, what does that word mean? But I was very early on, very accountable. Yep. And I learned that through my experiences that I had to be. So I took this level of accountability serious that if I read the books and I looked at what other people did, then surely that means that if I followed that path, I could create something similar. Mm. So for me, when the information is there, not applying yourself just didn't comprehend in Mm. my brain. So pre-working with Metricon, I was selling land for the gentleman who owned the rights to, or had the rights to sell all Metricon's land and all their land developments. And at that stage, I was probably on 30 grand a year doing letterbox drops in my spare time, four hours self-development a day, just through walking and having my headphones in. Mm. And your iPod back then (laughs) (laughs) that had, what, 100 songs or something on it. But there was that really strict work ethic Mm. because it was do or die. Mm. It wasn't a matter of just give it a go. It was like, no, if I don't make this work, even starting at Metricon, I was prepared to stack shelves of an evening. It was like you're on commission only. Mm. There's no wage. There's no safety net. And in some ways I think – that's probably helped me develop my career because I'm from the floor. Yeah. You know, for a lot of people, they're scared to go to the ground, whereas I'm born there. <laughs> yeah. So I've developed this level of thick skin to mm. know, well, if I'm from the ground, it's only going to get better. I'm prepared to do the things that other people weren't mm-hmm. because I was desperate to get out of the situation I was in, not from a desire of it would be nice, but if you don't make this work in your life, the other option is not where you want to be. Yeah. (laughs) The places that I've been and the people that I've been with, it was one very clear path or the other. And I had to make that decision very early on Mm. to get to where I am today. One of the things we've spoken about in the past when we were speaking about your experiences was the inner voice, right? And you just made that comment there where you knew There was no other option. And one of the things you've spoken about a couple of times or mentioned is no one's coming for you. Mm. No one's coming. Tell me about that inner voice that you had through those times and maybe that's still there today. 
I've always been of the opinion that if the outside noise is louder than what you can hear in yourself, it's too loud. You have to cut it off. And I think particularly right now, there is so many distractions and it's easy to get distracted. We Mm. almost want to be distracted because it helps us to avoid actually addressing our own shit. (laughs) Yes. So to actually sit in a little bit of silence to listen to yourself is incredibly frightening. Mm. For a lot of people and for all of us, we still have to go through those motions where you think you're good, but then there's another layer that you haven't quite addressed. I think for me, you know, 13 at one point, sleeping in tents, cars, and, you know, trying to really desperately find my own feet. There was a few moments that I had that came to me in the sense of, you don't belong here to make up. Yeah. And I think if I kept going down the reins of going with the flow and I wasn't very deliberate with the actions I had to take, I I could have ended up anywhere. I could have ended up in prison. I could have ended up with half the people that I was in in cars and intense with. Mm. So it was a very courageous moment for me in many of those moments to go, you don't belong here. How do you get out? Because going with the flow is not the river you want to be on. No. How do you step from a place like that to a place like today? Mm. You need to be very deliberate. And I think there was absolutely a part of me in those ages that was just running, just run, just get the hell out of there, just survive. But it was always led by an internal voice that said, you don't belong here. And in those moments, you know, you're breaking out of something that's comfortable and in groups of crowds and we're all creatures of wanting to belong. Mm. Stepping out of something in a situation like that means experiencing the shame that maybe I don't belong here. It means being the <laughs> the odd one out. Mm. It means being comfortable with people looking at you going, I thought you were like us and being courageous enough to go in a direction that your heart's following you. Mm. Mm. Purely for the sense that you have that inner knowing that you can't just continue on the stream that you're in. So part of that meant being really honest yep. with myself. It meant acknowledging where I was, even when I was really uncomfortable, but having a level of accountability to myself to not just be critical of other people, Mm. but to own my shit yeah, (laughs) and to realize what I was good at and what I sucked at and what I needed to do to learn to get out of there. So I was just reading books constantly listening to tapes back then, so (laughs) old, understanding psychology, understanding sales, understanding business. For me, I was just so excited by the opportunity of getting out of this country town and being able to have something that meant not where I was. Yeah. So I think it's a big thing. One of the things I wanted to talk about too, which I find interesting, and you touched on it there, because saying, I don't belong here and having that fundamental need to belong as well. So with saying I don't belong here and wanting for something more, then there's that opportunity, right? It is. But are there some emotions around who you might have to leave behind or what you need to leave behind? Did you have to go through that as well? Oh, every day of my life I still do. You yeah. know, if you want to run in the fast lane, it's uncomfortable. Mm. And that's why most people don't do it. Mm-hmm. And it's actually quite heartbreaking because there's moments I have where it's like you're on level seven. And you're like, 
come on, guys, we're going to level 10 and there's so many opportunities up there and there's this and we can have a better life. And even looking at the people that I was surrounded by when I was 13, I, I thought they were like me, that they just wanted a better life and they were in really poor circumstances. Mm. But then I soon learned that their decisions were very differently aligned to mine. Mm. And it takes a lot of courage, absolutely, to get back in the lift and go, I've got to keep moving. Mm. I've got to get to level 10. And that's not in the sense of I'm overtaking and I'm better than you in any capacity or even judging someone else. Mm. But it's knowing in your heart your potential shouldn't be unfulfilled. Mm. It's knowing that you owe it to yourself and you owe it to your own inner child and the little girl in you that's like, I just want to be the very best I can Mm. while I'm here. Has that been easy? No. I've spent my whole life this entrepreneur personality mm. that I understand now, but never, ever really fitting in. Mm. You know, I was the animal person, I think, as a kid. You'd go shooting with dad and chopping wood on the weekends. That's how we grew up. And if you were lucky, you got a 30 cent Sunday. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I remember when they were 30 cents. I know. Oh, gosh. Soft serve. $2 something now. It's like, what? Like, I don't know. I don't know. It was, it's more than 30 cents for sure. But, mate, we had the first two-story McDonald's in Grafton. We thought we were oh, killing it yes. <laughs> back then. But it's, um, yeah, I think being seriously honest with yourself is where you need to cut out the noise. Mm. If you can't hear yourself enough, you need to create that space between the external noise and what's good for you. Mm. That is absolutely, I think, one of the hardest parts about being honest with yourself is leaving people behind. Yeah. And there's so much distraction available right now. I mean, back in those days, you had tapes or you had books or you had to go to a dictionary and find information. Correct. And now it's just pick up your phone. So there's those Mm. quiet moments. If there's something you don't want to face, think about, look at. And normally, if you don't want to reflect that mirror on yourself and what you're doing with your life, it's very easy to find that distraction. And that's by design. Mm. You know, there's no secret to that. That is absolutely by design that we're filling every moment of our lives with a distraction. Mm. Do we want to be distracted? I think subconsciously probably yes, Mm. because it allows us to not be completely accountable for our potential in being distracted. But that's our design. You know, you just speak to some of the psychologists on social media that they understand what works to get your attention. Mm. But there's a great book called Stolen Focus. How do you get your focus back Mm. and at first it's confronting as all hell having this stillness Mm. just around you to go what do I do Mm. with my life what do I do with my time but I'd hate to think how many years of our life we're losing on social media oh gosh countless hours correct because all of it seems to be centered around a human's desire to be validated yeah am I worthy Am I enough? If through all of these stages of social media, you're being validated, there's your validation tick. Perfect mm. example. Yeah. Do you know how much money they made in issuing the validation tick? It was insane. First month, it went through the roof. And that yeah. just points to you the desperate need for people to be validated. Yeah. So if you can't learn to validate yourself and control that belief you have of yourself, someone's got you by the chain. Mm. And if it's not in a workplace environment or relationship capacity, it's going to be your entire life. Someone Mm. has got you by the chain Mm. just to give you that little bit more validation until you can recognize the game that you're in. Mm. And if you don't recognize the game or you can't see it, 
you're part of it. Mm. It's one thing to recognize how these things work and use them as tools, but that's not what's happening. Mm. You've got people that are just consumed in it. They're absorbed in it. That is their life without Mm. realizing I'm actually desperate for validation of other people. And I think the dangerous part is with business and social media and things like that, there's that requirement to try and engage and, and have your brand out there, but at the same time, having boundaries around your time, creating that space to listen to your voice. What do you do or what are your some tips that you do now you've read the book and you know that you need that time? How do you create that? You would be have a busy day. I'm just out of guess. How do you create that time yourself? To have the boundaries, do you mean? To have downtime, to have time to refocus, to listen to that inner voice and have time just to have the stillness. Well, look, the whole reason it's called practicing meditation is because you're forever practicing it. You pick up your phone, you realize, oh my gosh, I've just wasted all of this time being consumed in it. We're all guilty of it. Mm-hmm. We all do it and we have to wean ourselves off. But if you need to wean yourself off anything, that's a sure sign you're already addicted. Yes. In any capacity. Is it coffee? Is it time? Is it social media? Weaning yourself off something means that you are hands down already addicted. Yeah. And if you're conscious of where you're investing your time, and it starts with simple things like, what am I doing at this moment? Mm. I'm cleaning. Do I want to be cleaning on a weekend? <laughs> Is no! that what I want to do? <laughs> so one of the interesting courses I did once was on neuroscience and it spoke about getting from an emotional brain to a logical brain. Mm. And one of the ways to do so was ask yourself questions. Mm. It was, this is really upsetting me. Why is this upsetting me? Is there a particular thing that's happened? And suddenly Mm. you can think very logical Mm. rather than being in the emotion. Mm. You're able to observe the emotion in that perspective. I love horse riding. It gets me back to who I am. And and I think particularly in a corporate world, it's my one thing to go, you know what, above all the big titles that we all have, I'm still a country kid having mm. a crack and doing my best. So for me, it's horse riding, absolutely, to find that stillness. It's away from all the distractions. It's just me and a horse. And when you've got a beast that big that you're trying to hold the reins of, you don't have time <laughs> to focus <laughs> on whatever else I just is would, on you. Like, I just would not want to fall off. That's me. Exactly. It starts like, as a survival thing to maintain it. So for me, I've still got the border collies. That's a consistent theme in my life coming mm. from a bit of land. But, yeah, horses. Yeah. That's my How thing. many border collies do you have? One, but one. I've had many throughout had many. my life. One's enough. <laughs> Isn't it's one border collie like the equivalent to three correct. other dogs? Yeah. With yeah. The, the amount of, like, so intelligent, so energetic. They are Huge very high lover. maintenance yeah. in, in that capacity, but just absolutely lovable. If I ever need help wrangling my goats, I'll just give you a call and say to me, can you come out and get your border collie he onto this? Yeah, that. you can have a great old time. He just doesn't understand that not everyone's his friend. Like he'll just go <laughs> running up to this massive animal that's like, shit, what is this? And he's like, why don't you just want to play? You know, why don't we just want to hang out? So yeah. yeah. Awesome. So coming back to nature is obviously a big part of that. One of the things that we've spoken about before when we've chatted previously was the founder's journey and entrepreneurship, and maybe it's sometimes been glorified. I really wanted to talk more about that because it is, you know, mm. definitely. And I wanted your thoughts on what is the founder's journey? What's it like going through that? Tell us warts and all your, I guess, take on it. I think it's this notion of this hashtag entrepreneur that drives me a little bit crazy. And that's 
purely because we've got all these idols in social media now that go, you know, I'm a hashtag entrepreneur and it's glorified and it's pretty and it's cars and it's flashy and it's Mm. things and it's all these things versus the journey itself. And there's a really incredible quote by Cher of all people that says, you'll be successful in direct proportion to how foolish you're prepared to look. Oh, yes. And I think what isn't showcased about that entrepreneur's journey is the moments that suck. And it's the moments that suck that showcase in the public moments, this notion that you have all these pretty things and you get all these material possessions is so not what entrepreneurship is like. Entrepreneurship is going in the different direction than most people. Mm. It's questioning why we're doing things that way and why not try this way? Why Mm. not try a different way versus being stuck in that conveyor belt? You can look at it from a different perspective to go, there could be a better way, you know. Mm. Why not? Mm. Why not try it? So entrepreneurship, founders, it sucks at the moment. I've built three businesses in construction. Well, four now. And there are moments that incredibly suck. There are moments that you question yourself. You're going, what have I done? And the next moment you think, oh, I've just nailed it. I've got it entirely together. (laughs) And the next day you're like, I've completely screwed up. (laughs) What have I done? And you're managing this internal belief system the whole way through. And if you're not conscious of that, your actions will mirror what you believe about yourself. Mm. So you won't go for that big next step because you don't really believe you're enough, whereas you have to manage that level of who am I, what do I bring to the table to directly link your actions. Because in any transition of discomfort, we always go back to our beliefs, mm. always. You shift from stage one of, I'm just going to start to come out of my shell and mm. try something new. And then the minute it goes, well, it's all good. But the minute it goes wrong, psh, no, that's right. Because that's right. Everyone, you know, people don't stand up for you, do you? You've only got yourself to rely on. Like all those internal beliefs come back to you of what you believe the world truly is. And that's what keeps you captive is that sense of, but I'm only this, right? Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I'm only a kid from Grafton, right? So I've consistently had to challenge that belief system of me being more than I was mm. to grow and to be that person. Mm. That is the only way you get from somewhere like I was to where I am is yeah. leveling up that belief system about yourself at each occasion to match my external world that I wanted to be in. And it's not pretty. I think there's this notion of perfectionism that Brene Brown talks about that says, if I'm perfect, you can't shame me, Hmm. which is why I think growing up, we had these perfect leaders. We still do. And they're so completely not flawed that it's unattainable. Mm -hmm. So when you're going through these rough journeys, you think, well, I'm not normal because they don't look like that. Mm. They look perfect. Everything's so rosy in their life. But the reality is there's moments you're in the shower crying going, have I got this all wrong? Have Mm. I completely stuffed this up? Particularly in a space like construction. Yeah. The more we speak in private groups, the more we realize how normal it is Mm. to be threatened Mm. for your life all the time in construction, particularly Mm. a CEO or a founder of any kind. That's the real normal of this mm. industry is having to deal with that. Now, on a facade point of view, no one wants to admit that. Mm. Everyone wants to go, no, I've got it all together. It's all perfect. Without accepting that 
the congruence of emotions means that you can be petrified and still show up. Mm. You can be scared but still do the work. You can still be an incredible leader whilst being a little bit uncertain underneath. Mm. And I think normalizing even that in itself is a game changer to help people to grow into their true potential. Mm. Because there are many moments you suck and you need to keep going. There are many moments that people will poke at your flaws, but you need to go, that's okay. I'll keep showing up. And I think one example in knowing your beliefs and being really clear on that and growing those is knowing what you stand for. Mm. And I think knowing what you stand for is what's going to keep you getting up. Yeah. If you just said to me, go through everything you've been through in 33 years, just for you. I would have given up a long time ago. Mm. But, you know, my belief system around wanting to make it better and wanting to build these bridges from where I was to where I am kept me going knowing that I'd be able to help someone. Mm. And what I stood for always allowed me to overcome those major obstacles. Yeah, It wasn't me. It was this notion that who's going to stand up if you don't? Yeah. Who's going to go through those hard times if you don't? So it's not pretty. You know, entrepreneurship is not pretty. It's, it's like there was is a purpose greater than you that is guiding you as well. It's not just about you getting through it, through all these challenges for you, but also more an impact or the way it can shape other people's lives. Through the work that you're doing, what's the impact that you do want to see? What are the changes that you hope you can make? I think when you go through enough shit in your life, you kind of look back and go, how do I apply meaning to all of this? And for me, I found meaning in knowing that maybe my purpose in the world was to go through these really difficult things so that I could learn and help other people so they wouldn't have to. Mm. And that's been my sole view of the world since I was 13. No, there's a reason I'm going through this. And that's what helps me to show up in Mm. those moments to go, well, if I have to go through it, if I have to be the one going through those difficult things, I'm going to build a bridge to make it easier for somebody else. Mm. You have moments of going, gosh, why am I doing this? You know, when you're building roads, you're not walking on one. It's a lonely journey of creating a vision that no one else can see but you at times. Mm. And you're out there in the bricks and the mortar and you're, and you're building something. People are looking at you going, she's crazy. What is she doing? And with entrepreneurship, you're either absolutely nothing or you're a legend. <laughs> and there There's is nothing no in, between. in between. It's like all those people are, that are overnight successful and... <laughs> You know, suddenly everyone's like, oh, yeah, let's grab that coffee, you know? And you're like, yeah, what are those moments that I was sitting on my own as a country kid and you didn't look twice at me? Like, it's a fascinating road to go through. Because for me, I'm still the same little girl that I was Mm. internally. So not needing the validation of someone else is why I say is just imperative to where you go in life and what you can actually accomplish Mm. with the world you're in. But Purpose-wise, in moments when you want to give up, and we all do, you can't sit there and go, I've always loved it. It's always been great. It hasn't, let's be honest. There's moments that suck and there's moments that you go, I want to throw in the towel. But what builds resilience is in those moments when you've built a tunnel and you're 100 metres down and going back is just so far 
and you don't know where forward is. <laughs> but you're in this moment of, God, I've got to dig deep because mm. going back is too far. It's mm. not like you can just pop out and you're back to normal. You sort of get stuck in this moment of, well, where's home? Mm. I need to create it. I need to find it. I need to build it. That's when your accountability comes back. But you speak to people and, you know, I spoke to someone, you know, the Wilkinson family, I spoke to um, Reese. He's the, the dad now that's got the eight kids. And he said the kids are so excited for their house to make it. They can't wait. They're planning their rooms and stuff. And I thought, no, that's why I stand up. Mm-hmm. It's not for my own satisfaction. I've given everything I have into my companies to create social and affordable housing. So no one can question my integrity. No one can question, well, I've just done it for myself. I've committed. I've invested everything I've got into mm-hmm. building these things because I think me having a house is one person. I could help thousands mm. in passing and sharing this knowledge on and being able to create these homes for people. And that's not for me. Mm. That's realizing that both of my grandmothers were in social housing and we're still mm. facing the same problems that we are today that we were back then. We're not growing. Mm. We're not doing anything differently. Mm. Why the hell not? <laughs> yeah. In today's day and age, we shouldn't be having the same problems that we were back then. But I think when someone comes to you in a vulnerable position, like people have, and says, can you help me? And I've done that to people. Perfect example. Mm-hmm. Can you help me? There's a part of your heart that just goes, get out of the road. I'm going to help this person. They mm-hmm. need my help. What can I do to make this better? And I think with all the problems of the world, mine's been social housing. That's been where my heart and everything's gone into the world. But particularly just to go, guys, if we're doing the same thing, that we've been doing our whole lives and it's not working, why the hell are we repeating it? Mm. Why not change it? Mm. Seems so simple in my brain. Apparently it's not. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to talk more around the, just in case some of the people listening aren't familiar, tell us about the I Stand for Kelly story and tell us a little bit about your journey there. Yeah, so Kelly Wilkinson has allegedly murdered by her husband in a horrific domestic violence victim. She was burned to death on the Gold Coast, leaving three of her own kids behind. And her sister, Danielle, had five children of her own. Mm. And immediately, without a question, Danielle and her husband, Reese, went, yep, we're taking the kids. Didn't even question, you know, in a sense of complete courage when yeah. we've got five kids, but without a question, they went, yep, okay. Some of them are eight kids. Yeah. And I remember going to meet the kids. I know the family. I didn't know Kelly, but I know the family because Reese is my stepbrother. Yeah. And I went over and I met the kids and Kelly's youngest daughter grabbed my hand and she's saying, mummy, mummy. And I thought she was saying Tammy because all the kids oh, call me that. But when I worked out, she was saying mummy. My heart just broke because mm. I thought I can't. Mm. What can I do? Get like, me. <laughs> Get me. Yeah. yeah mm. You know. How, how is this okay? Yeah. So and I think in a situation like that, absolutely, I've got a little girl holding my hand. There's probably a younger version of you mm. in there that's like, please help me. Mm. And in that moment, I was like, immediately stood up. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, we're building them a house. I'm not leaving these kids. 
it's one thing to, for them to go through everything they've gone through, but they need to know that the world is full of good people too and the world is full of people that are not going to just watch by and say that that behaviour mm. is okay. Yep. We're not ignorant. You know, we can be deliberately ignorant, I think, as a society, or we can consciously choose to go, that's not okay. Mm. So I said, we're building a house. Everyone's like, how are you going to do it? I don't know. We're building a house. Don't care. We're building them a fucking house. Yeah. <laughs> and a story. Did a little post on uh, social media. Got the girls in the office to, to help me create something, put it online, and then just stood up and went, we are building them a house. Within 48 hours, we had everything together for a $1.5 million home. Which we're 48 hours? Yeah, and we're handing that over at the end of the month. So now I say to government and people, guys, let the community help. They sincerely want to. We've just proven that we can (laughs) in 48 hours. But I think what was great about that is in such a male-dominated segment, I sincerely went to the sector and went, I need your help. I can't leave these kids. And every single one of those men that I work with stood up and went, we're in entirely. We're in. We're not. Yep, we agree. We're in. For such a ruthless sector, it brought out this beautiful heart to Mm. the industry of people that went, we're not okay with this either. Mm. And I think what's fascinating about that is, is you don't need to have money to have integrity. You can stand up and be very clear on who you're standing for and people will stand up with you. But to be the first person that stands up is completely uncomfortable. But why? Because you could be embarrassed because you would be shamed. So to take that emotion out of it is because you're standing up for something that's so much bigger than you. Mm. And that's why you put yourself in those positions. Because suddenly what this little girl thinks in her little view of the world is more important to me than if I look stupid. Mm. You can say I look stupid when I'm standing up for what I believe in and my integrity, go hardest. I don't care. The fear comes out of it. The fear mm. completely dissipates because you have something of that aligns with your integrity and your values. Mm. So the fear completely goes away, which is why I think purpose is such an important part to what we do. Yeah. What a story. You got me going. I was like, oh, Lauren, you just don't be crying on the, <laughs> on the book you're interviewing. Don't be crying. <laughs> no, but I think that that story, as well as, as showing your complete dedication and there's something so much more special about somebody that founds a business with a cause that is greater than themselves, that wants to have an impact or change something because it's a courageous thing to do. It's the hard path to take and it is sometimes shit. Like mm. it's no, you are putting yourself out there, but you're doing it with a cause greater than yourself. One of the things I wanted to talk about is where I think this is the perfect lead in where you've been underestimated because. 48 hours, you've got enough people coming forward to build this family house. That's phenomenal, right? We've talked before about the wait lists right now for social housing. What are the wait lists for so for people looking for social housing at the moment in the country? Oh, it's something ridiculous. They reckon if we have 1.1 million homes in the next five to 10 years, we'll just break even. Wow. If I was in need of social housing and I was fleeing a domestic violence situation, how long would I need to wait? There'd be emergency situations for you to go into temporarily. Yeah. But the reality is the wait list go up to 10 years. Wow. Yeah. So having 
people phone me directly, particularly post being in the media with everything that we do with the Wilkinson family and being in social housing for, you know, over a decade now. This has been my life. This isn't something new that I've done. But having people phone you that are 80 going, hey, I'm just being kicked out of my home. The rent's gone up. I can't afford it. Can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? And I say to state governments, say to a lot of people that I deal with, once you field those calls directly and hear these people's stories, you can't be ignorant to it. You can't sit there and go, sorry. And look, maybe some people can. Maybe that's a weakness of mine that I can't just turn a blind eye to things like that. But I think if someone's giving you a problem and it keeps showing up on your lap, do you just deliberately ignore it and close your eyes? Like I've almost envied ignorance to a degree because I'm so anything but, you Mm. know, I take it on to go, I want to help that person. But the way lists are enormous, it's disgusting. And I think from a social housing point of view, we've always looked at short-term strategies, always. Mm. We've had programs like NRAS that had 36,000 homes nationally. Mm. And they were all subsidised by the government. After 10 years, no one actually thought, what happens when that subsidy is removed? No one thought of it. And we're so quick to criticise China, but they've got, guys, they've got a 100-year plan. (laughs) (laughs) We're just working on election. Like, what is it, four years? And then we're like, I don't know, that's the next person's problem. Correct, correct. So what happens at the end of 10 years? Well, we have 85-year-olds calling us. Perfect example, 7,000 of that 36,000 was in Queensland alone, you know, Mm. and all of those people basically lost their homes. If they weren't owned by housing providers of the government, they couldn't afford to go from $200 to $600 a week. Mm. So all of those individuals in their short-term plan were out of a home. Now, those houses went to the general market, sure, but everyone that was in social and affordable housing, they just got worse. Where are they going to go? Vacancy rate is next to non-existent. You've got rents that went up in the Gold Coast by 35% in one year currently. Yeah, That gives you an idea on how big the gap is and how big it's growing Mm -hmm. to be. But still, we're looking at short-term solutions. Just get a house, patch it up, get a house, patch it up. Fill the subsidy for a short-term period. But what actually happens at the end is something that we're really excited to work with with states and local governments to try and help solve. Yeah. Because after doing it for so long, Mm. the problem's getting worse. We can do incredible announcements and we can say, we've got this, we've got that. Guys, the data is we're going backwards. This Mm. isn't anything to be glorified for. Mm. We can do so many ribbon cuttings, as many as we want, but that doesn't deny the data. Mm. The data is we're going so far backwards in social housing It's not funny. Mm. So I think when you start to work at a level of being a director Mm. and we do a bit with state governments where we'll draft strategies and things like that, but you work at that level, it's one thing. Working with the people is another. And I think because of my background, I've been very well grounded to know the road Mm. these people are on. And I've taken judgment out of it. It's easy for us to judge. And I think that denies our accountability if we do, because even situations like the Wilkinson family, mm. it's very easy for people to go, it's those people, you know, that's not us. 
And dissociation is a way of completely denying your accountability because mm. it's not us. Whereas what we did in that situation is we went, no, guys, this is enough now. This is us. This is our people. This is happening to us. Is this something that we're okay with? Mm. And suddenly that brought that intentional perspective from every individual that could help to go, we're not okay with this. Mm. But the good thing in situations like social housing and even the Wilkinson case is people gave what they could. Mm. You know, we had people phoning us up, I'm a landscaper and I don't have any money but I can give you a day on Saturday, can I come and help? Mm. Or, hey, I've got paint, you know, can I paint? Everyone felt the opportunity to contribute with Mm. what they had. Mm. And I think that's what's so special about those little segments of the market of social and affordable housing Mm. is that when you do stand up, you create a path for other people to stand up to. And you also give people the vehicle to feel like they can contribute. Mm. And it was a perfect example of doing that within 48 hours. Everyone went, I want to help too. Mm. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of helping a child know that in dramatic circumstances, they're good people. There Mm. are good people that are going to stand up and help you. And everyone Mm. wants to be a part of something like that. But until one person stands up, Mm. where do we go? Yeah. And there's no gonna there's not gonna be a follower if there's no one else there to follow or a leader coming before you. Correct. Yeah. I always say with the greatest tragedies, I was actually talking to my son about this the other day, and I can't remember where I heard it, but they talk about the fact that whenever you see a tragic event that's occurred or a great loss, look at the people helping. Look around at the people helping because you're seeing there the greatest tragedy in humanity and obviously what those children had to go through. But then on the counter side of that, people like you, people like the people that came and stood up and said, I'll give a day on my Saturday, people that are giving up their time and their money shows you what we are capable, what the human spirit is actually capable of. Correct. So show me the tragedy and I'll show you the people helping. The good people. There yeah. are the people helping. Yeah. And that's the silver lining, isn't it? I like to believe there's no mistakes in the world. Maybe that's just my way of coping. But from these really horrific circumstances, you think, does that then create enough of a movement that we stop doing that? And I think what's tragic is when you see that it continues to happen. Mm. You know, I think the social housing, the domestic violence, all of it, these women are dying and they're going through horrific circumstances and you think, hey, that's enough now. That's enough now. That's enough now. But when we're continuing the same behavior and the same things, you start to really question if we're doing it right. Mm -hmm. And social housing is a perfect example of that. Guys, I've been doing the same thing for so long and we're going backwards. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's something that we should continue to do? Yeah. Are there certain reforms and things like that that you've been looking at or talking about or is it merely just starting to cast an eye on what happens after that 10 years? What are some of the things that you've been considered? Part of what we've done at My Bella Casa, which is an off-site construction company that we've developed, and that was really the missing link for us in mm. being able to get these so bigger pictures of social housing in regional areas to work. But part of what we've been focusing on is that exit strategy. What happens? Mm. And I think My Bella Casa was that missing link for me. You know, I understood the development aspect, the construction aspect, working with housing providers, 
they do incredible things for the mm. sector. And then there was, how do I get the cost of construction to stack up in regional areas? Well, let's build it offsite and transport it in. So mm. that's why I created that next business. But part of looking at all of that objectively meant that there are people with great intentions and there are people commercially minded. How could I build a bridge in between mm. to get people what they need but then to service the people that have the bestest of intentions? Yeah. And that's what the market is. Everyone's now going and grappling with, well, how do we do it? How do we figure it out? But that's exactly what we're going to be delivering in the market is something that actually does consider what happens at the end. Love it. Yeah. Tell us about when you've been underestimated. So we've touched on this before, but I think it's an important topic to discuss because working in the construction industry, I'm sure it can happen where you may be underestimated with everything that you've achieved as well. So tell us about that. Oh, look, all the time. I still am. Like, have a look at me. Like, <laughs> I'm in construction. I'm on the Gold Coast. Like, I took so many stereotypes of people just go, oh, okay. So it's easier if I just shut my mouth and let you assume <laughs> and just let you make your own, draw your own conclusions as to what you think. Well, stereotypes I tick all the time to the point now where I don't care if I'm underestimated. Like, mm. if you're foolish enough to underestimate me, that's your problem, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> but all the time. You know, when I started at 19 in construction, no one knew my age. I never told anyone. I was working with 60-year-old men. You know, I wanted to be respected. So I worked really hard to dress the part and conceal the part and to the point where... I used to envy even girls wearing bright colours because mm. I was like, I never got to do that. It was how do you look older, more mature, get the respect. And it wasn't like, oh, yeah, this is something cool to do. Mm. When you're a 19-year-old, it was like, no, this is survival. Okay, you got to walk like that, dress like that. And how do you get the respect of these people? And little old me would walk into a boardroom and people would go, who the hell <laughs> is this? You know, I, back then. So, um, you know, even now you're on boards with seven-year-old, 80-year-old men and it's just, it's common. Yeah, you know, they see the blonde hair and I think by now I have enough respect in the sector that people go, she always shows up mm. and she's put her ass on the line on so many occasions. And people have respected that. Mm. But I, I like to call it, let's leave the cheese out. Because to me, that's allowing people to be who they are. Mm. You don't need to correct them. And I think this is something I've learned in my career because at first I was probably very righteous and I wanted to be validated myself. You know, you don't learn these lessons mm. from not going through them and being honest with your own flaws and your, and your own, the things that you need to learn about yourself. And in going through that transition of wanting to, at first, probably prove other people wrong mm. and myself right, mm. I learned a lot about the importance in allowing yep. rather than correcting. Allowing people to be who they are means leaving the cheese out to see who takes it. <laughs> <laughs> it means going, I just want to see what you'll do if you do underestimate me. Because it teaches you more than telling people what to do. You know, yeah. I've worked with many people at very senior levels. And if you're in a position as a director of a leader of any kind, your sole focus is mm. trying to prove other people wrong and yourself right. 
It's one thing to steer the ship, mm. but if you're coming from that perspective of an egotistical mm. place where you're desperate to find other people wrong and yourself right, that's manipulation. Yeah. That is yeah. your own inner child needing you to validate them rather than needing validation from other people. But I, I do observe that behavior, I think, more than people realize. Mm. If you start having conversations around, I'm wrong, you're right, I'm wrong, you're right, eventually what it does is just like a little chip. Yep. on your ego or yep. it's a chip on that person okay that's right okay that's right i'll go back to my box yeah okay that's right yeah that's manipulation <laughs> yeah and that's something i'm very conscious of observing now mm. i think in my early days i would have gone you're right i don't know best you do show me show me master mm. and i would have given away my power to somebody else just to have that sense of validation of somebody because mm. we all do it without being conscious until we don't. You know, we do it until True. we're aware of it. And in those situations, you know, recently I had someone that was saying to make you know, I know best and I got this and I got that. And it was a position where we're both meant to be equal and working alongside each other. But the first thing I did was observe the behavior of you're saying I'm less, you're saying I don't know, my, I know very much in comparison to you. And then this person actually went around the table to kind of diminish everyone. They, they said something bad about everyone in a way that I was watching and they probably weren't conscious of. And then it was like, but I can help you. Mm. <laughs> and I watched that and I just smiled and said, thank you. We're so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> The hero has come. Correct. And there was that heroism of, um, yeah, wow, this person can come in and be the hero. But what I did is I, you know, without them realizing it, I left the cheese out. I want to see who you are. And in a moment of weakness, one, you denied your own accountability. You completely denied your accountability. You were more interested in proving yourself right for your own validation than you were hearing everyone out and then making a decision as a leader yep. to steer the ship. Yeah. But three, no thanks. Because what was actually said to me is, well, to me, I'm 18 years older than you. And I said, respect you, but age does not equal wisdom. Automatically experience does. And I think had you had more experience in me in that situation, I would hand up and own that. But I question whether or not you're telling me that I'm wrong and you're right for your own satisfaction or for your own validation. So if you want validation from me, I'll give it to you. But I don't need to crucify myself and be less than you for you to get what you need in the situation. Mm, I love that you actually called it out. Because how often do you not call it out? I, I mean, how often do you, does it happen? And you know it's happening mm. and you feel it, but you don't call it out. Or worse, and I've seen this happen you let that person make you feel less than. And that's the worst case scenario. Yeah. But I love that you called it out. I'm shocking at that. I think I'm <laughs> love like. Love it. My dad used to say to me, you know, to make you're as subtle as a sledgehammer. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in my early careers, I was so keen to call it out because I'm like, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. <laughs> Whereas now I find a way to try and keep that person's ego intact because mm. I've learned that, well, then I'm just as bad. Yeah. I if, yeah. I, if I'm calling everyone out in that sense, I have to question why I'm doing that. Yes. You know, in that, pers in that perspective, I was coming from a place of being kind. Mm -hmm. 
It wasn't in front of other people, by no. the way. It yeah. was one-on-one. Uh, but in the past, you know, I've been in boardrooms and someone's screaming, and I need this and I need that. I'm like, mate, whinge to your wife. We're here to actually get business done. And I would say that, not even <laughs> coming from a bad place, but you'd see these seven-year-old men go, who is this woman? Just, who is this woman? And I'm like, and everyone just look at me and I'd go, what? Like I just thought, you know, so, so I'm not quite sure if I'm on the spectrum or whatnot or where that comes from, but um yeah, I, I have been the worst at calling things out like that. And people look at me going, what? Like, I just didn't expect that. I had a boss once earlier in my, my career, so I love having to make her on my team because she looks like a Barbie, but she's aggressive as a tiger and no one sees it coming. Like, it just comes out at you with this um, direct words. But, yeah. Leave the cheese out. Just see who people are. You know, yes. give them an opportunity to show. It's not that people need to prove themselves to you, but it's more that if you give people the space to be who they are, they'll show you and you can see who they are quicker than creating an enemy and trying to control that. Mm. And that's the reins that people feel like they never, ever want to give up because there's a sense of control and power. But if you're doing that as a leader, you're actually more leading through fear mm-hmm. than anything and you're actually probably really scared. Mm-hmm. So you actually need to ask yourself what you're scared of. There was an episode, so Mel Robbins runs a podcast that I was listening to and I was talking to my whole team about this and we all resonated with it. And, and it, it was just a simple episode of let them. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard that. That episode just sat with me around if they are doing something that you don't, if they are leading in a way that you wouldn't or they are approaching you, just let them, just sit back let them. If your children are making a bad choice, it's their choice to make. Yeah. Let them. And for some reason, it was just an aha moment for me because so often when we have that behavior, we want to control it, but that's because of us or our own insecurities. We don't like the way that that's making us feel Mm. or we haven't dealt with our own stuff. So we're trying to then control that. But I love the idea of just leaving the cheese and going, let's just see, leave that there and see how they show up. Correct. Trying to control it, contain it, you know, or do anything about it, just observing. Just it. observe, correct. And that's what's, you know, fascinating in some of these experiences because they've naturally underestimated me. Mm. And I think what's fascinating to watch in a human being is if they can take advantage of you, will you? And that's what you try and ascertain in a business perspective is if you think you can, will you? Mm. So being underestimated isn't a bad thing. In fact, it can work to your advantage Mm. because you get to see who people are. Would I have had that experience if I was a middle-aged man? And No, I don't think I would have. Realistically, no. But, you know, you come in from the perspective, Tamika, I can help you. I can help you. But, you know, maybe it's because you're younger. Maybe it's because you're younger. I'm feeling this hand come over me and I can see it. It's like I'm just going to control and then I've got you, whereas what was happening And quite fascinating in that instance when someone's come to control and they would usually get their needs met in Mm. being able to control the person, I've gone, thank you, I don't think it's going to work for me, Mm. you know. And it was just, it was fascinating watching their reaction of, wait, this is when I get my needs met and now I haven't, oh. (laughs) Yeah. And they actually tripped into this sense of, I need to sell myself here because I'm not getting what I want. Mm. So instantly I'm looking at it from a perspective of there's so many dynamics happening here. Yeah. But in an argument you're either the child 
parently adult. Mm-hmm. And the child is, I need these things. And, you know, the Celestine Prophecy is an incredible book that talks around the control dramas. Mm-hmm. And the control dramas, how you've adapted in your own world as a child that you're not even conscious of to get what you want. Mm-hmm. If you're aloof is one, interrogator is another. There's, an, I think it's an agitator, an argumentative one. There's about four of them. I can't think of the top of my head, but it was about how these people get their needs met as children mm. and how they've brought that into the adult life Ooh. based on getting their needs met. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about that is that people will compromise their values to get their needs met mm. more than you realise, you know. Mm. There's been so many interesting studies done around brain science when you're a child and what's happening to your brain. But if as a child you had an interrogated mum, you might become aloof. Mm. I just don't know. I don't know, mum. I don't want to tell you. Because that causes you then to go, oh, well, let me ask some questions Mm. so you can get your needs met. Mm. And you do that at a subliminal level. Suddenly you bring that into being an adult of, I'm aloof. I just won't say too much. I'll go be quiet because mm. people start stepping over their own limits to mm. give you power. Mm. You take that into an adult life. You look at corporate Australia, corporate America, any of them, we're all dealing at a child level trying to get our needs met. Mm. And that was a perfect example of someone that went, no, this is when I get what I want from someone and it's not happening mm. and they start to sell themselves in a sense of well now I need validation because I'm not getting what I want <laughs> mm. have you ever watched or oh, I've watched sometimes because my husband's super into politics and he's showed me you know where you see where you're watching Parliament House and there's people you know yelling like children and standing up and throwing tantrums and things like that and that's never more prevalent when you think about politics around some of the carry-on that happens there that there is some I don't know what it is some childlike stuff that comes up it's interesting looking at it from that perspective and I've got a lot of friends in politics so, I <laughs> so we'll keep it PG. I won't say that but I do think it would be a great thing to do if all political leaders did a lot of work in emotional intelligence yes because there's some people that play the subject yeah and they do it great it's just about the subject guys you don't need to diminish someone to make yourself look better. No. And that's kind of the game. So you can't, sometimes I want to criticise the people, but then I go, they're born into the game, they're merely playing it. So who's mm-hmm. wrong? Is it the individual or is it the game that they're into? So, you know, from that perspective, I have compassion for those people. But if you look at what happened in the New South Wales election recently, mm-hmm. both of them at the end came out and commended one another yeah. and said, you know, great, great win, well yeah. done. Yeah. And how the people reacted to that was fascinating because everyone went, wow, look at these two respectful gentlemen Mm. that know how to carry themselves. Now, I don't know anything about the guys, but perfect example of how the public reacted. Yeah. And I was interested to see. I was like, I wonder if people observe that to say, yeah, wow, that actually works really well Mm. from a public's point of view not crushing an individual. Mm. You know, we had something recently, we passed these harassment laws of you might be bullied in school and the next minute you're out calling each other names and I go, guys, that is actually just mean. <laughs> like some of the things you say to each other is absolutely bloody it's mean. mean. Like yeah. it's just, why are you doing that? But, you know, 
hey, I can only solve so many problems. I'm just focused on housing. <laughs> got, yeah, you've got I'm social and affordable housing. Social and affordable housing. Let's look at politics next. And one of the things I always love the saying, so if is the situation wrong or is the individual wrong or do we need to change the game? Correct. You know, because they're just playing the game. They are. Yeah. And that's where, you, you know, you go, I'd like to think, you know, everyone does their best mm. with what they have. And every one of us, including political leaders, is doing our absolute best. Yeah. Do I think they could be more compassionate to the fact that just because someone's on the other side of the fence does not make them bad, yeah. does not make them wrong? Yeah. And even from a camera's point of view, it's not going to elevate you higher. Mm. It's a focus on the subject, not the person. Yeah, I love it. Look, I just feel like you've covered so much around leadership and so much around your journey as well. And yeah, just loved having you on the podcast and loved learning more about you. We do have a bit of a fun round that we go into, okay, okay. which is Rocket Round. Okay. Okay. It's really kind of simple questions, but it gives us a bit of an insight into you, particularly the cats or dogs question. Yeah. And this first one I reckon will be hard for you. Favourite book? Oh, Power of Love. Oh. Sounds yes. really corny. I would look at that and go, oh, so corny. I'm not reading it. But taking all the spiritual element out of it, the core fundamentals of that book is that you're either living and making decisions from a place of love or, some, or from fear. Yeah. And it's really fascinating when you look at your decisions in life and ask yourself that question, is this from love or is this from fear? Mm. And you start to realise that you're spending most of your life just living in fear, mm. the whole thing, you know, more than you realise. When you're scared, you make that decision, is that from love or is it from fear? Mm. It's 80% of the time from fear. Yeah. So I think it's a beautiful outlook on the world. Yeah. Of how if you come from that perspective of love, yeah, it changes the world. Okay. Love that. Going to read that book. Cozy fireplace book for me. And coffee or wine if you had to choose. Coffee. Coffee. Okay. And your white Christmas or summer Christmas? Um, I like both. But, yeah. you know, I think sometimes we get so caught up in the materialism of Christmas, you know, I think it was the Queen or something once it had a tree and then we all went, yeah, let's go buy trees. This is what we do now, guys. We all buy trees. <laughs> but I think Christmas loses its meaning. Every year for Christmas I'll do something with the homeless or, you know, at one point I do a lot of work with foster kids. Yeah. And that really brought things back to perspective. You're caught up in your own corporate world and you think, oh, this is the worst day ever. And then you're sitting with a child who has nothing lost both his parents and he's going, car, your turn, mm. with the biggest grin on his face and you think that's the meaning of life. That's what's important. Mm. Just having, being reminded what matters. Mm. I think Christmas just loses its way in consumerism. But the simple things of gratitude and that some people don't have what we have is something I consciously do at Christmas time. I love Christmas. Christmas is like my favorite time. They actually start celebrating in November. Yeah, and I don't even care. I don't oh, even apologize. No, I do. do Everyone, it's, it's well person? known. Yeah, I sing, so I do like carols as okay, well. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I'm known to get a bit into Christmas. My children know that in November I start decorating because I feel like Christmas has this magic around it, it of giving generosity and care and family yeah. and the values behind Christmas. I was like, if I can make that last longer, 
I Why will. wouldn't I? I will. And my yeah. children love it. They're like, oh, mum's setting up for Christmas now because she wants Christmas to last longer. She's not long enough for That's her. sweet. <laughs> I reckon my biggest anxiety at Christmas is hearing Mariah and being in the car park, <laughs> just going, oh, you know, you got everyone in car parks freaking out like we're going to be shut for a day. We may not, you know, get that present that we need. And it's just like all, all rushing at the shopping centres as oh, well. Gosh. Um, my husband used to work in retail early on. And so when he hears, Christmas carols, you know, you can just see him twitch yeah, because in trigger, re- anyone <laughs> that's worked in retail has heard them trauma on trigger, repeat. Yeah. Trigger. <laughs> Mariah, I'm going to lose it. Yeah. And so, and cats or dogs? A dog, dogs, poor dog cats. Allison came on and she did. I'll never forget her cat Roger. I, when I messed her for her birthday, I said and say hi to Roger for me. So she was someone that said cats. But most people have said dogs. Podcast that you're listening to right now, um, other than this one. Yeah, not a, not a podcast, but I'm listening to an audiobook. I love Robert Greene's stuff. He's got the 48 Laws of Power, but he's, uh, I'm listening to one around, I think it's the emotional intelligence of mankind or something, and it's fascinating. And I, I, the reason I love his work is because he makes you accountable to your own stuff. He doesn't just speak and go, you know, other people like this, other people like this. He goes, but you're flawed too. Do you do this? And you're actually forced to go, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how I've made everyone else the bad guy in this story, but why did I get to be the hero? <laughs> you know, is, yeah. that, is that my true reality or is that just the reality that I've created? And the other one I would listen to recently was the point to 1%, 0.1%, which is around a Navy SEAL and just their emotional strength to overcome obstacles. Yes. And he went through an experience recently. It's taken me a lot longer than I wanted. And he says about how in the seals they would lie to you about what the finish line was and it would build your resilience because you think you're there and you're oh, like, no. no, sorry, another 10 Ks, mate. You go, oh, I'm just around this bend though, I swear. would not what be okay. Five Ks. <laughs> but what's fascinating is it teaches you a lot about yourself in the sense that you need to build your own milestones because if you say to someone, go on 25, I'll oh, forget it. <laughs> you know, do one. I can do that. Do another one. I can do that. It teaches you so much, even down to the fact that he said, you know, they'd get back to their dorms and they would have thrown all their stuff out and just like, five minutes now, quick, gave a shower, get all your stuff together, what are you doing? (laughs) But they disrupt their world to get them to adapt to that level of frustration. They completely mess with you to get you to be disciplined enough to go, I can overcome this, I can overcome this, Mm. which I loved. I mean, coming from nothing and going through incredibly traumatic situations, that's what I've developed Mm. the most is Mm. you want to rumble on the floor? I'm from the floor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Most people aren't. You know, you want to take me down there? Mate, I'll survive longer than you. (laughs) (laughs) So it's that mental strength and resilience and I think even just asking yourself what the next right step is Mm. all the time versus wanting to see the staircase, as we all do. Um, Also, I would really like that Navy SEAL when I'm getting ready in the morning with my children and getting people out the door, get in there, get in there, come on, bags, like I just feel like that would give everyone the sense of urgency that we have to have to get to To get get shit done and get to places on time out the door. So um, anyway. Um, Imagine having eight kids. Imagine Jalen and Reese. Eight kids. Eight kids. I mean, five was enough. And then having eight. I know. Eight lunches. Eight 
kids to get dressed and out the butter door. that big. Like I've <laughs> never in my life, I didn't even know it existed. I was like, wow, butter mm. comes in that size. Like, thank gosh we've got a Costco. Yeah, I was going to say Costco. Costco is life when you've got a family of eight kids, I'm butter sure. slabs. It's insane. Whole different world. Yeah. It'd be a whole different world. And they've adapted to that. And the thing is that they just never was never even a question. That's what I loved. And I think that's what inspired me is they just stood up Mm. and went, yep, how do we do it? Don't know. Mm. People were like, how do they actually do that? And they were like, we don't know, but we're going to figure it out. Mm. I admired that. I was inspired by that. I respected that. And I think that's part of the reason I stood up too because I was like, well, I'm, I'm with you. You know, we'll figure it out. Now, I want to tell people as well so they, because I'm definitely going to, there's going to be upcoming reveal or something coming up. Oh, the reveal. Yeah, tell yes. us about it so, so everyone can watch it. Yes, at the end of the month, we're going to be handing over the house so they'll be able to see that current affair with Channel 9, uh, which will be exciting. Uh, but, yeah, the end of the month, we're due to hand over the home, which will okay. be exciting. And I'm ecstatic to see the kids. Yep. And see their reactions because it's so much more than bricks and mortar. And I think that's what is underestimated in construction is there's so much heart giving someone a home, you're giving someone hope mm. and you're giving someone a sense of belief that they will take throughout their life for the rest of their life now. Mm. You know, they've had a horrific circumstance, but in their belief and they're in their world as children, they'll see that there's good people too. Mm. And I think that's why this is so special Yeah, because 48 hours I worked endlessly, didn't sleep, and everyone commended me for this thing. And I thought, isn't this just what we do? Isn't this what we should do? You know, yes. why am I getting all these accolades for this thing that we should do for each other? We should help people. We shouldn't just walk away when someone needs our help. But particularly... For the kids, you know, we, we need to show people that that's not okay and mm. that's not what we're okay with. And particularly for all the men in construction, you know, mm. to stand up for me as a woman, to be vulnerable, go, guys, I need your help. That's one barrier. But all the men stood up and went, we're actually not okay with domestic violence either. I was like, yeah, hats off. That's mm. how we should roll, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Let's accentuate all the people that don't agree with this either. Yes. So if you are that way inclined and if you, if that's your world, here's an entire construction industry in this segment alone that is standing up to go, well, we don't agree with it. So maybe you should find a new industry to play in. Yes. Oh, so much covered. I was tearing up. I'm going to have to have my tissues for this current affair episode for sure. I'm very much an empath, so I will be very much tuning in. How can people get behind you and support you as well? Tell us some of the exciting things that might be happening in your world and your businesses and things like that as well. Sure. So I'd say jump on to tomeeksmith.com and you'll be able to access everything we do from My Bella Casa being one business with offsite construction, we do business to business builds in offsite. Mm-hmm. Top 100 Women is another business yes. um, that I have, and that's an online platform to support women in construction and women in the sector. It is for women and men available as well. We wanted to ensure that if we've got an industry of 90% men, we don't exclude them. Mm. <laughs> we need their help. So, uh, Top 100 Women is designed to give people the educational platforms, the connectivity to grow mm. in that sector. So, you'll find all of that on tamikasmith.com. Personally, I've only recently taken up a little bit of mentoring just one-on-one for a couple of people in the industry Mm -hmm. to be able to support them and scaling in the industry. Mm -hmm. It's not that I don't do enough um, charity-wise already, but I recognise the value and the people that are coming through from 
a hardworking perspective that are looking for a pathway. So I've made the decision that I'll take on three girls at any one time to do that, nice. to support them, catch up once a week, to grow them yeah. uh, in their careers with whatever I can. You know, we've mm. had girls that we've worked with that we've got jobs at BHP, we've brought them on boards. And what we're trying to do is build up that profile so they can mm. go get a CV and go, I've had, you know, work experience here. I've had experience on a board. You know, being able to do that in your mm. 30s, 40s, at any stage in your career is awesome. So mm. if I can do that with my connectivity and my network, then absolutely that's what I'll do. Love it. So you've heard it all here. You've, you know exactly where to follow Tamika. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Just absolutely loved chatting with you. And it's just so heartening to hear the great work that you're doing. And, thank uh, you for thank having you. me. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Building Doors. If you've got comments or questions, send them to hello at buildingdoors.com.au. And remember to subscribe, rate and review. See you next time.